Yeah, but I'm, I'm about 100 pages from the end of Harry Potter book four. Okay. I'm trying to keep up with my daughter. Okay. Um, I doubt any of our readers have heard of that. <laughs> There's a lot of geopolitics. <laughs> You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to The Slavic Connection. Today I have with me uh, Professor Mark Lawrence, um, a little background. Mark graduated from Stanford and Yale, dabbled as a newsman, I believe, true, briefly, um, lectured at Yale, has published two books in the Vietnam War with one on the way, um, edited a number of books, published a metric ton of articles related to Vietnam War, um, if that's the correct unit to use. Uh, <laughs> You're very generous, yes. <laughs> uh, professor, welcome to the show. Is there anything you'd like to add to the introduction? Nice to or? Yeah, I think you... You covered it and made me sound better than I actually am. That's so what I try to I'll do. I'll just leave it there. It's the least I can do. <laughs> um, so, of course, we want to talk talk Vietnam um, in a, the most Slavic way possible, which sure. probably isn't the most natural way to go about it. Um, I guess my first question generally be, let's go 1964, Tonkin Gulf. What is the reaction in Russia to that? Hmm. To, to the Tonkin Gulf? Um the reaction was surely that um, here was an instance of unwarranted American aggression that fit within a larger narrative of Americans uh, using excessive force against mm-hmm. a defenseless population. Um, uh, and I t- suspect that the reaction in connection with Tonkin Gulf was the same as with any number of escalatory steps across mm-hmm. 1963, four, five. Sure. And were there movements quickly or did it take a number of years to get weapons or aid from USSR into Vietnam or has that, has that been sort of developing since Dien Bien Phu at last, you know? Well, that's an interesting question. So there's no question that the DRV and then North Vietnam after 1954 received a lot of weapons from the communist powers. Mm -hmm. But the precise balance between China and the Soviet Union in providing the weapons and support is where the story gets really interesting. Mm -hmm. And the balance was very, very different at different times. Um, In 1950, when both uh, China and the Soviet Union throw their support behind the Vietnamese uh, revolution. There's essentially a tacit deal that really applied to all of Southeast Asia between Mao and Stalin, under which Mao, i.e. the PRC, would carry the ball in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. So really, at that point, there's no Soviet aid to speak of going into Southeast Asia generally to support revolutionary movements, including the, the Viet Minh or the DRV. Uh, but that was, you know, that mm-hmm. should be understood as part of a broader right. deal. Um, and thereafter, uh, the Soviet Union starts to send somewhat more support, I would say, by the late 1950s into North Vietnam. But the balance still tilts very heavily toward China. Um, where the story starts to get really interesting, I think, is with the Sino-Soviet split, when mm-hmm. the, the Soviets feel more pressure um, in order to demonstrate their leadership of the communist world. Um, by, among other things, sending weapons into places like Vietnam to show mm-hmm. that they, too, you know, are, are on the scene. And then, long story short, somewhere around 1967 or so, 
um, the balance really actually switches and the Soviets start to provide more aid than, than China does. And the Cultural Revolution has something to do with that. Um, growing antagonism between the Chinese government and the DRV has something to do with that. Um, the desire and, and the skill, indeed, of the um, North Vietnamese regime to sort of play off one superpower right. against against mm-hmm. the other is, um, is is responsible for some of that as well. But the, the balance really shifts very dramatically such that by the early 1970s, there's very little Chinese aid and it's almost entirely Soviet. Really. And of course, uh, at the end of the American war in Vietnam, uh, the DRV and then unified Vietnam after 1976 is easily describable as a Soviet satellite. Mm-hmm. It is a, a Soviet satellite. So it's more of a pursuit, less of we're losing the war. Or we need, you know, more arms in this way, more we need to control who is giving aid to Vietnam to shape the country afterwards. Less sort of actual military reasoning from the Soviet Union. Well, I, th- I, th- I think that's right. I think probably at the highest levels of the Soviet government, the guiding consideration was the global one, you know, mm-hmm. the, the need to demonstrate uh, Soviet leadership of the communist world by supporting revolutionary movements. I mean, the Soviets by this point were quite open and vulnerable to Chinese criticism that they mm-hmm. were status quo oriented. They were, you know, kind of weak, weak willed <laughs> communists. So um, the, the Soviets really felt a lot of pressure, I think, to deliver the goods in mm-hmm. a way that was demonstrable to the, to the rest of the world. But what's interesting about that story is that this, the Soviets, I think, at the same time, really had no particular interest in um, bogging the United States down mm-hmm. in a major war in Southeast Asia. Oh, okay. So their relationship with China dictates a certain policy, but at the same time, the Soviets, you know, from the mid, really from the Cuban Missile Crisis going forward into the mid and late 1960s, were mostly interested in detente with the United States. Mm-hmm. So the Soviet policy, I think, is it makes for a very interesting subject of study because it's it's conflicted. It's it's schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. It needs to demonstrate revolutionary ardor. But at the same time, Soviet leaders wanted to avoid um, antagonizing the United States, distracting the United States from the detente agenda. One of the curiosities of the Vietnam War is that, you know, detente flourishes at the same time the United right. States is, is fighting in Vietnam. And I think this it's it's interesting to put the Soviet Union into that story because they are involved in both mm-hmm. and keeping both balls in the air. So it's be an ideological giant, but tread lightly at the same time. Was it a similar exactly. sort of support to the Korean War where it's, okay, you're using burp guns and okay, these are clearly Russian jets, but we haven't done anything like they kind of had hands off. No, 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 don't look at us sort of. Yeah, I think same idea. I think that's right. I mean, I think... Um, uh, Kim Il Sung essentially, you know, got the got the okay from Stalin mm-hmm. before the the beginning of the of the Korean War, but Stalin made very clear, according to the best research on the subject, that mm-hmm. he should not expect any Soviet support, and he, right. he should go to Beijing next to mm-hmm. see what the Chinese. Have Who to knows where those MiG fifteens came from? But yeah. uh, not Soviet Russia. No, exactly. In, in, mm-hmm. in Vietnam, I mean, the the, um, the 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 Soviets, despite their. Um, their reluctance to antagonize the United States was unquestionably supplying by the very late 60s and certainly by the early 1970s, not only a lot of equipment, but also extremely sophisticated military equipment. Um, So, you know, the heavy equipment that enabled the North Vietnamese army to fight more like a conventional military, and in fact, to become one of the biggest militaries in the world Mm -hmm. was largely supplied by the Soviet Union and very effective um, anti-aircraft apparatus in, in, um, 
especially in Hanoi, was mm-hmm. largely provided by the Soviets and Vietnamese um, uh, personnel who manned those installations were trained by the Soviets. Right. And so do you see, I mean, this goes into a much larger discussion of Vietnam. Do you see U.S. failure from sort of self-inflicted wounds, whether it was the public image or was it their sort of like the modern ideas, there wasn't total war in Vietnam. That's kind of like what Bush sort of pushed, I think, in the Iraq era. Do you think it was sort of U.S. restrictions or you think it was just that the North Vietnamese were very well armed and were had capabilities that the U.S. couldn't yeah. totally wipe out? I mean, so how to explain U.S. failure? Yeah, so it, here, that's a huge question. Here's the, the big question, I yeah. guess. Um, so, you know, reasonable people have and big will continue to disagree about this gigantic question. Um, my own view is that um, the United States failed in Vietnam principally because of the political failures of the South Vietnamese state. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, of course, a lot of scholars, memoirists, former participants, etc., polemicists, who argue that the failure in Vietnam was a result of a specific bad decision. So you change something, right? You fight the war in a different way. You send more troops more quickly. You use more bombing here and not there. Um, mm. You muzzle the media or mobilize the reserves or, you know, there's an right. infinite number of solutions that have been proposed over the years um, that allegedly, if they had been followed, would have brought um, happier results. In, in my view, yes, it's possible to run, rerun the, the Vietnam War in this counterfactual way and to imagine that things might have gone better for the United States and for South Vietnam. But to me, and I think for a good number of people who spent a lot of time thinking about the war, um, better does not mean decisively Victory. better. Mm. And the fundamental failures of the South Vietnamese state to command the loyalty, support um, uh, of its own population is the fundamental problem. And, and the responsibility for that, of course, fundamentally lies with the South Vietnamese state. But given the amount of time, attention, resources, and blood that the United States pumped into the task, mm-hmm. clearly it was a failure of U.S. policy as well. So you don't think it was a lack of aggression, though we weren't targeting these certain dams or targeting certain industrial centers. It was sort of the structural viewpoints of how the U.S. is supporting South Vietnam that was never going to result in total right. victory. I mean, I, I think that's right. Um, again, I, I think that uh, it's plausible to argue that there are things, including different ways of managing the war from a strictly military standpoint, that might have produced somewhat better results. Um, conceivably, the use of more force in different places more quickly could have... Um, brought somewhat better results. Um, again, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical that uh, differences in, in, in this arena would have come close to producing an over, a different outcome in an overall mm-hmm. sense. And, and let's remember, too, that Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos are the most heavily bombed uh, countries in the entire world. So we have to be careful about saying more force right. was the solution to the problem. Um, the The more plausible arguments, of course, are force used in a different way, mm. which in certain moments, in certain places might mean more force. But, um, you know, there's this other uh, part of the debate over the military conduct of the war that 
is, I think, very much worth thinking about that suggests that the problem was not too little force. The problem was too much force. Mm -hmm. And um, where Americans failed in a military sense was in treating the war too much as a conventional war, demanding heavy use of firepower and large numbers of troops. In fact, from the outset, it should have been understood as a counterinsurgency kind of war, demanding a whole different set of techniques and probably smaller numbers of Mm -hmm. American troops, um, largely focused on different kinds of functions. I don't honestly have a strong view about that, that sort of debate within a debate um, among military specialists about whether it was more force or less force that was the secret Mm -hmm. to, to a better outcome. It's not really my specialty. But I also, at the end of the day, as, I, as I've already mentioned to you, um, see it as largely a kind of interesting, but ultimately not hugely consequential debate within a debate. Right. The larger point is that the war uh, failed from the American and South Vietnamese standpoint, standpoint uh, from for, for political reasons. Yeah, maybe Saigon falls in 77, says 75, but that's not a better result. Exactly. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. What, do you, what do you even think U.S. victory would look like in Vietnam? I mean, is it a demarcation like Korea? Because that's not a victory. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we were speaking about another class, how <laughs> World War II gave this very bad impression of what victory looks like in war. Mm-hmm. You have a very clear enemy who is defeated and the spoils are divided. When war historically is usually fought in more sort of stalemates. So yeah. I mean, what, what would victory, this is kind of a... Strange hypothetical. What does it even look like? I mean, a point that's made so often about the Vietnam War is that the United States really didn't um, have a clear sense of what the goal was. Mm -hmm. Now, one level that's unfair because the goal was clearly after 1954, the preservation of an independent, Western oriented and secure South Vietnamese state in an enduring way. Sure. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Lots of confusion and indecision, though, I think, about how you get to that point. And that, that's where the criticism, I think, is, is, much, um, is much fairer. But th- th- that, was, that was the goal in mm-hmm. 1954, as it was in 1965, as it was in 1975. Yeah. Um, so, um, but yeah, right. So I, what would that have looked like in practice? Um, you don't uh, have to have a straightforward yeah, answer. It's, I mean... It's a, that's a, that's a good question. That's if, why you if, study this, I imagine. If policymaker is trying to come up with an answer to that question in real time, it's, mm-hmm. it's difficult, I suppose, to, to put oneself back into that history and come up with um, a, cl- a clear idea. Um, uh, you know, I, I think the, the basic generalization about the American military performance that you can advance is that the United States, U.S. forces basically assured that there would be no worse than a stalemate as long as there were 500,000 Americans on the ground or mm-hmm. you know, many hundreds of thousands of Americans on the ground. Um, so there is some truth in the fact that it was the declining political will back in the United States that made that untenable. So mm-hmm. it's possible in some strictly military sense to imagine an enduring American military, I guess you could call it occupation, that prevents the worst from happening. Right. But the fact of the matter is, as a democratic society, um, American foreign policy is subject to uh, the political will of the nation. And I, I think for some commentators, particularly people sort of coming at it from a hawkish standpoint, you know, that's a that's a weakness of the United States. You know, we, the United States failed because the, the home front went soft. Mm-hmm. But what's missing from that is a sense that war is always or at least should be thought of as 
an expression of politics. Yeah, that's close. So yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, uh, exactly. War, war by other means. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Politics by other means. <laughs> war um, by. Um, so it seems to me that there's a kind of willful disregard for, for commentators who make those kinds of arguments of what war really is and, and what it really is, especially for a democratic society. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's face it, by, you know, 1966, seven, eight, you know, um, skepticism about the war was coming from many, many different elements of the American population. Um, right. Uh, it's a quite broad based movement. And do you think, I mean, the war takes on such a negative tenor in the home front if it didn't happen in, you know, if there wasn't Kent State, if it wasn't the civil rights movement, and then all of that, the punctuation is the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Do you think, I mean, this is a very strange counterfactual, I don't even really know to voice this, but <laughs> if the 60s were a less tumultuous time, say it was yeah. more like the 50s, and the conclusion was the Vietnam War, do you think it takes on the same sort of image? Or do you think the more liberalized, the more social, the more publicized American life was, mm. produced this just way more exploitable war on the home front. That's a really interesting question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's clear that the anti-war movement overlapped with and drew on and shared membership with, you know, other movements of the 1960s. And it counts for a lot that, you know, the American public or at least significant chunks of it were sort of accustomed by the early 1960s to thinking in more critical ways about their government, about elected officials, about the nature of their society than certainly was the case, say, 10 years before. So something important happened at a very basic level, I think, in American society across the later 1950s and down into the early 1960s that gives rise to civil rights, um, the, you know, the whims, ultimately the women's movement environment and all the other movements that we might associate with the 1960s. So, yeah, I think you're right in suggesting that the, that, um, the Vietnam War coming when it did sort of drew on and drew energy from this bubbling stew of, of, of right. dissent and, and more critical attitude mm-hmm. than, than had existed certainly at any time since the, the 1930s. Um, bubbling uh, seems to be States. the appropriate metaphor yeah. there. Yeah. I do think that, you know, it, it, on the other hand, it doesn't take a ton of imagination, I think, to see that um, the war would have turned out to be quite controversial, even absent that larger social backdrop. And, you know, I think the way I would make that case would be to look at the Korean War, for example, mm-hmm. it takes place in the height of McCarthyism in the United States. And yet, you know, 1952, 1953, that was really unpopular, something yeah. that I think a lot of Americans forget about mm-hmm. the Korean War. Um, there weren't a lot of su- support. And yes, people weren't out in the streets in the same way as Vietnam. Right. But on the other hand, I think it's it's fair to see American opinion by and large as having turned pretty dramatically against that war. And, you know, look at more recent times as well. Um, the, the, after the turn of the century, I don't think we think of, you know, 2001, 2, 3, 4 as a time of particularly assertive kind of dissent in American society. I think there's a kind of sense of apathy, mm-hmm. you know, um, and yet look what, you know, right. uh, happened in connection with um, Iraq. Now, I suppose you could say, well, that wasn't nearly as big and significant as it, as it could have been. And, but still, uh, I think I think my point remains, you mm-hmm. know, you, you get a significant amount of pushback and skepticism and dissent, even in a moment that wouldn't seem necessarily to give rise to, to sure. a lot of that kind of thing.
Wow. I think I'm burying the lead a little bit. So where does your specific research go into this conversation? I read, uh, I read an article I read for the Brook, uh, Brookings Institute talking about sort of the modern uses of the um, Vietnam War. How pe- I'm not just bragging, but right. <laughs> um, how people uh, use, well, what lessons people learn from it and how they produce policy from that. So right. I mean, what is your next book sort of getting into about Vietnam? Um, Right. So you don't need to reveal yeah. anything. No, no, no. Um, I mean, I've honestly, I've looked at, I've, I've come at the war from, from very different angles. You know, my, my first book was a very detailed, dense study of the earliest phases of American involvement in Vietnam, really trying to answer the question, how did the United States first make the, um, counter, the anti-revolutionary commitment that ultimately would lead to a, mm-hmm. a major war? Um, I then uh, turned my attention to a... Um, a, a, a sweeping narrative of, of the war in a, in a sh- short but all-encompassing um, account of the American involvement in, in Vietnam. And really, I think my goal in that was to um, was to capture in a new and fresh narrative, essentially what we were getting at in an earlier part of our conversation when I suggested that Historians need to be open to the idea that the, there were moments in the war where different decisions could have been made um, with possibly, you know, important consequences for the course of the war. But on the whole, uh, the political problem was so fundamental as to um, lead, you know, ultimately to the outcome. So in, in short, what I try to do in that book is to take stock of um, a lot of the new scholarship, including a lot of it coming out of the communist world, um, but also to sort of update, refresh and reassert what is, after all, a fairly old and fairly orthodox argument, at least within the academy, that the political problems were, mm-hmm. were fundamental. The article that you mentioned is connected to some new research that I've been doing over the last couple of years about the uses and abuses of mm-hmm. the Vietnam analogy in policymaking. I'm not quite sure where that will go uh, right. in, my, in my future work, but it's something mm-hmm. that I'm extremely interested in. And um, I think there's good potential there for more work to be done. Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is the war is very much alive and well in policy, in, in yeah. American politics and relatedly um, policymaking deliberations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, every time there's sure. a, uh, a, a new intervention, you know, that in, in the works, you know, Vietnam mm-hmm. gets trotted out yeah. um, by, interestingly, by people on various sides of the issues, you know, most conventionally by people who are skeptical of the uses of American power. But of course, there are some really interesting uses of the war to mm-hmm. serve other purposes as well. Yeah, I think you reference like Ted Kennedy being sort of the voice yeah. of like this, we, you know, we're engaging with a foreign culture with yeah. M-16s and I don't see how that's productive. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And that particular comment um, came from the Iraq surge in 2007. And that's actually a classic example, I think, of the malleability of the Vietnam analogy. Mm -hmm. So someone like Ted Kennedy in the speech he gave in January 2007 says, you know, here we are doubling down on a failed enterprise, sending more American blood um, into the fray despite failure, Mm -hmm. just like in 1966, seven, eight. Sure. Whatever. What's interesting, though, um, is that a few months later in the summer of 2007, George W. Bush gives a speech before the 
Veterans of Foreign Wars Convention, where he uses Vietnam in exactly the opposite way. He right. says that the real lesson of Vietnam is that the United States left too soon before mm-hmm. achieving its objectives, allowed itself to be guided by doubt, um, allowed itself to be swayed by softening um, opinion on, on mm-hmm. the home front. And as a consequence, in Southeast Asia, we got not only the fall of South Vietnam, but also the killing fields of Cambodia, right. the boat people. Um, so it's very interesting, I think really problematic, but very interesting and revealing use of Vietnam. Um, the total war argument, pretty much. I mean, do you think that's more actually like based in anything in reality in Vietnam or just sort of a bad lesson from Kuwait? How this show of force in the correct manner can lead to a week-long war. But history would say that doesn't exist, right? I remember that's uh, just... You know, those are flashes in the pan and that wasn't really war. Right. Or so. So so, so I guess my question would be Bush's lesson was it's the total war argument. Uh Do you think that's sourced like from any factual evidence in Vietnam? I think it's a bad lesson from his father's war. Well, I mean, I suppose at some really basic level, his his point about Vietnam was had some legitimacy. Um, it is indisputably true that the withdrawal of American power from South Vietnam set the stage for the collapse of South Vietnam, sure. which in turn led to mm-hmm. the re-education camps and indirectly and somewhat problematically, but I, I see his point, the, yeah. the fall of Cambodia to the Khmer Rouge and the, the killing fields and the, the boat people and, and all of that. Um, the big question, of course, is what difference um, a decision by the United States to remain engaged would have made. Right. I right. guess this There's goes a, back to the Saigon Falls two right. years later. That's right. Victory. Exactly. Exactly. Well put. I mean, mm-hmm. um, uh, was there an opportunity there, as I guess Bush wants us to believe, that sticking with it for – X number of more months or years would have brought a different outcome. And there mm-hmm. are people who believe that. Um, I find that really problematic, though. I think. Right. And do you think, I mean, Iraq is like the natural comparison. Do you think the aftermath in Iraq, which has become pretty much universally negative on both sides of the aisle, do you think that this, the instability there is seen differently from the instability caused in Southeast Asia post-Vietnam War just because there are way more economic interests in the Middle East now? Uh-huh. It's, it's a much more sticky area to have total collapse. Yeah. Southeast Asia, people could kind of pretend it wasn't there. Yeah. And this, I mean, that's horrible. I'm not saying, yeah. I'm not saying this is a good mindset to have. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I think one of the, ironically, one of the things Americans learned in the 1970s was that Southeast Asia really wasn't that important. Um, and, um, or maybe that's the wrong way to put it, that the, the um, consequences of defeat were not nearly as dire right. as the worst case predictions had suggested um, in the, the 1950s and 1960s. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, Vietnam falls, no surprise. Um, Cambodia and Laos fall, and that by 1975 was certainly no surprise either. Mm-hmm. But what's really remarkable is that the rest of the region really yeah. didn't fall or even teeter. Right. And that reflects what I suppose you could say was some quite skillful American um, diplomacy uh, across the 1950s and 1960s to um, 
to to uh, secure for the West in political and economic terms, virtually every other part of Southeast yeah. Asia. And the big moment in that story is Indonesia in 1965. The by far the biggest domino, the, by far the most mm-hmm. important domino was Indonesia. Such a you know populous and resource right. rich, rich country in 1965 through a very brutal coup. I should hasten to add, mm-hmm. um, the country kind of falls into the U.S. orbit. And meanwhile, Malaya and Singapore and Thailand and, and the Philippines and, um, of course, Australia and New Zealand, take, taking a step further out, all of this was very much already in the American orbit. Right. Um, I think there were some uh, studies conducted during the course of the war that speculated on the consequences of American defeat in Vietnam. And they came to the conclusion that it probably wouldn't be that dire. So those predictions turned out to be correct. But by that time, of course, it wasn't really just the the domino idea, just an attachment to containment that was driving American policy. There was a whole set of political and um, credibility issues, you know, that was really keeping, keeping the war going. But your, your comparison to the Middle East is, is an interesting one. Um, yeah, I, I, maybe I'm not enough of a Middle East expert to have a strong opinion about, you know, why um, instability seems to spread uh, right. yeah. somewhat more readily in, in that particular case than it, mm-hmm. than it did in, in Southeast Asia. But one of the obvious explanations for that is that the opportunities in other parts of the Middle East for the United States to secure those areas to, to the United States have not been nearly as abundant no, right. or, or well uh, capitalized. Um, upon, and I don't mean for a second to, um, to to describe that that process of building American strength elsewhere in Southeast Asia as, a, as a entirely a happy or um, you know positive story that we should all be proud of. I mean, those were brutal military yeah. regimes in virtually every single one of those countries. Mm-hmm. So to say that it was secured to the United States is to um, it, 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 we, we, in saying that we should not ignore the kind of human consequences. Of, of that. But from a naked sort of power political standpoint, there's no question that Americans exaggerated the importance of Vietnam right. and missed what might have been the bigger story in Southeast Asia for the second half of the 20th century, which is the kind of evolution of virtually every state except for Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos toward a Western oriented capitalist political and social stability, right. which, you know, emerges as the sort of culminates in the Asian tigers and, 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 sure. and all of that. Yeah. So stepping back a little bit, um, I should ask this earlier temporally, but it's okay. Uh, so I was re- watching the Ken Burns Vietnam documentary, which I assume like everyone kind of watched. One of the first points of the documentary is that the U.S. was wrong to see this, uh, the fall of the Bien Phu, the French leaving as an ideological victory when it's really sort of like a last war against colonialism. Uh-huh. Do you have a strong opinion on that sort of, you know, duality there? Was this yeah. the messaging wrong from the start? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a that's a fair point. So, the French War is is really interesting phase in this longer story. It's actually where I I got my start writing about the the French War. Oh, really? A lot of research in French, not in Russian. <laughs> um, and you know, one one of the things that makes that period so interesting and so complicated is that the conflict is two different things simultaneously. It is a colonial war driven by the French attempts to reimpose French power after the humiliations of the Second World War. And it is a dimension of the Cold War. 
right. driven by the fact that the Vietnamese nationalists um, were in some ways and complicated ways part of the larger communist world. So the French, w- one of the sources of um, antagonism, tension between France and the United States and this very awkward partnership that they form after 1949 was the fact that fundamentally Washington and Paris saw the war in different terms. Right? Mm-hmm. Americans saw it as a Cold War battlefield and wanted the French to behave as if it was a Cold War battlefield. And the French were there. I mean, they, they talked about it as a Cold War mm-hmm. battle because they knew that would draw Americans. The French were like, the, the Germans are our enemy. What are you talking about? Like, say again. The French were like, the Germans are our enemy. What are you talking yeah. about? Like, we're, we're going to side with the Russians. Yeah. It, well, yeah. it was very, um, yeah, very complicated time. Continue. Yeah. Sorry. No, so, no, I mean, I, I guess I've um, answered your question, although maybe um, not, not in as, de- as much detail as, as you would like. I mean, as I say, I think the complicated thing about the French war, particularly in its last four years leading down to Dien Bien Phu, is, is both things simultaneously. So when the final... Um, Viet Minh victory comes in 1954. It gets celebrated within Vietnam and really around the world as a as an anti-colonial victory. Right. And it also gets celebrated as a communist triumph. And it, it's true. Mm-hmm. It's 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 both things. Right. Um, and of course, it says something about the nature of anti-colonialism um, in the Cold War, and especially, I think, in that that rough moment where most uh, vigorous nationalist movements were affiliated with the communist world and drew, drew their strength, drew at least material support from mm-hmm. the communist world. Right. And that was driven really by a calculation about necessity, it seems to me, more than anything else. Although, you know, some nationalist movements had ideological affinities sure. with, with the communist world. It makes sense that a fight against colonialism would not be absent of ideology. So I understand both points can hold. Yeah. yeah. You know, you all who study Soviet history um, can talk about this um, in, in more detail and sophistication than I can. But it seems to me that the broad point to be made is that, you know, Marxism is kind of ambiguous on colonial revolution, mm-hmm. anti-colonial revolution. Yeah. Right. Anti-colonial revolution is in some ways predicted by Marxist theory, I suppose you could say. But. There's, at the same time, a, skip, a skepticism, I think, baked into basic Marxist dogma about peasants, about the ability of right. agricultural societies to wage revolutionary war, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, Stalin describes peasants as, as the embodiments of backwardness right. and sort of hopelessness. I mean, they're the last people in the world who would ever bring you enlightenment and progress. Yeah. Um, Lenin is, is the figure, it seems to me, who who works out this problem. Right. And it's no surprise that people like Ho Chi Minh gravitate toward Lenin as the person who gave peasant societies a, a place mm-hmm. in, in the global purpose, revolution. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think the North Vietnamese were in Marx's calculus for creating the socialist world, no. but um, I think, yeah, I think we're actually at the edge of our time. Sadly, I like to end interviews though, by asking sort of just what is uh, the last thing you read and the last thing you watched um, that you really love to give readers, maybe a recommendation could have everything to do with Vietnam, nothing to do with Vietnam. Well, I'm not finished yet, but I'm, <laughs> I'm about a hundred pages from the end of Harry Potter book four. Okay. I'm trying to keep up with my daughter. Okay. Um, I doubt any the, of our readers have heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of geopolitics. There, so it might actually be, 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 um, 
be, be quite uh, relevant to, to the study of the Vietnam War. I'm not quite sure. Uh, but I'll tell you a book that I just uh, finished listening to, actually, in my car driving around town, which I could not recommend more strongly. Um, I kind of stumbled into it, didn't know what it was about, but really um, found it fascinating. Stephen Walt, who's a very high-profile political scientist mm -hmm. at Harvard, has this new book called The Hell of Good Intentions. And essentially, the book is an analysis of American foreign policy um, since the end of the Cold War. And it characterizes American foreign policy under Clinton, uh, George W. Bush, and Obama as a catastrophe from start to finish mm. and sees the fundamental problem lying in the foreign policy establishment's attachment to what he calls liberal hegemony, spreading American principles, being active everywhere, all the time, at great cost. And he explains Trump, I think, at least in the foreign policy realm, on the basis of um, the idea that he has actually, Trump has very successfully and accurately diagnosed a basic problem at the core of American foreign policy. Um, Walt is no fan of Donald Trump's right. and in the last couple of chapters makes very clear that he sees Trump essentially as diagnosing the problem mostly right, getting mm -hmm. all the solutions totally wrong. Right. But it says something, you know, that a fringe character like Trump is actually better able to diagnose the fundamental flaws sure. in American foreign policy than the people who spend all day thinking about American foreign mm -hmm. policy and actually, you know, have the fancy degrees and the fancy jobs. And so the hell of good intentions basically refers to this um, conglomeration of academics and policymakers and journalists and others who spend their careers thinking about foreign policy, who believe they're doing the right thing all the time, but in fact mm -hmm. are um, presiding over a deeply misguided Anyway, whether people agree with it or not, and I'm not saying that I necessarily agree, it's, it's an incredibly provocative work and is useful for thinking about the last 30 years and especially for thinking about Trump. Excellent. I think we can add that to a reading list somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Sure. The views, opinions, and ideas expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Thank you for listening to the Slavic Connection. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information and to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. As always, we invite listener feedback, so please send us your comments. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin.